dude it's crazy like how many pdfs that i've come across and i've downloaded and it's like 20 pages and i'm like why is this 600 megabytes like what do you have in here why is this so big <laughs> but that's what's so cool about it. I like it, but I think you should always have two versions, a low quality version for people, you know, above old iPads and stuff, oh, yeah. you need a low quality version. But if I want one and I have it on my huge, like 4K screens, then you don't want to have a pixelated picture. Yeah, that just looks like someone just smeared it onto your monitor. You want something that looks quite nice and then it gets heavy Yeah, because you have like huge images, but I think that's fine. I like that. I don't feel like they need to dumb it down that much from what they sent to the printer. Yeah, give look me, at, look give at, me at you, Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press is like, I love Cobalt Press, but all of their PDFs load like shit on my tablet. I have a really old iPad too, so. How is that holding up? I'm honestly it's curious. It's not good. They haven't updated the iOS for that for a long time. It still works fine. Dropbox still works with it, but not OneDrive anymore. So my old Dropbox app on my iPad still syncs. So Dropbox is really kind about what, how old the program is going to be. I was going to say, that's, a, that's impressive. I would love to have a new iPad, especially now I've gotten Marvel Unlimited. And I would love to read the comics on a modern iPad. But like you said, I can't pay $200 plus for a, for a PDF reader. It's like, that's crazy. Um, hello, everyone. This is, I can't even remember the podcast name now this is grave seekers and fortune seekers and grave robbers <laughs> this, is, this is fortune seekers and grave robbers uh the podcast about all things osr well my name is malcolm and i'm here with gabe we are here today to continue our introduction to the old school renaissance at large our first episode we discussed what we think about the play style of all the games that exist within the movement and today, I think we should continue it and discuss the scenes of the OSR. What kinds of creators are there? What kind of titles has been created? What about the blogs? All that kind of stuff. So we're going to start with, a, I think, a short introduction, because I get the feeling that this will be a running theme throughout our entire <laughs> podcast series, is to just to discuss things that we think are cool. Yeah, that's pretty much the only reason why we're doing this. Like, you, you got you to gotta be a real high-level geek to want to just talk about OSR, like, and then record it and then tell people, hey, listen to me talk about OSR. <laughs> but it's great. Just yesterday, I was discussing uh, different OSR titles with some uh, friends over mm -hmm. Discord, and I always feel like, oh, this is my element. <laughs> oh, absolutely the same. I talk with Kirby from Disaster Tourism on a actual daily basis they are getting very into osr adventures and supplements i'm actually going to be running them and then some other friends i'm going to be running them through i think i'm going to do an ose module but we're mm -hmm. running it in labyrinth lord because i'm a labyrinth lord purist I'm a, I'm a holdout i'm one of the only ones <laughs> that hasn't converted to ose not because i don't think it's bad but we'll talk about that later but i am a lab lab lord stan much love to the Labyrinth Lord. Well, I think we could bring up a few titles. Yeah, let let our years of playing and trying and randomly buying OSR games kind of be the filter for you so you don't have to spend your hard-earned money. You can just go, hey, I heard these two guys, they talked about this game, you know, because anything I'm going to be suggesting or discussing, um, I'd rather that be an actual suggestion of like, yes, you should spend your money on this than anything else yeah there's so much out there to look up and to try and to read there's a bunch of blogs and great places to find out what people think of different titles so that you can always check up what maybe people have already tried out the games beforehand mm -hmm. before you yourself dive in but i figure that we can just look into what we think are cool see what we can do with that i think we can begin with a kind of timeline for the osr because it being a movement also kind of grounds it in a time and space. And I think what most people, when they discuss the OSR, they think of the beginnings being the end of third edition, the beginning of fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And they often talk about 
the creation of the OGL, which allowed game designers to use a large portion of the Dungeons and Dragons rules and uh, to create their own content for that and even create their own clones of the game. So the first major clones I would suspect would be Castles and Crusades, which is a great simplification of I would say third edition, but they wanted to harken back to the older style that D&D was before third and fourth. And of course, the major clone is Pathfinder, <laughs> which one of the third party creators, Paizo, decided that they could probably um, catch and uh, find a lot of, not disgruntled, but maybe uh, players who who were missing third edition when fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons was released. I'm glad that you include Pathfinder and Castles and Crusades because a lot of people don't. Because I think that they had at least um, contributed the idea that you can make money and you can create a profitable product that is basically just a clarification or sorry, rules clarification, reorganization, and maybe even a kind of like a fork, like if we're talking development, like an actual fork of a rule set. And then from that, you have games that came in like Osric and whatnot that started to really push like, okay, you're doing third, let's go back to like first, first exactly. edition. After the simplification or recreation of third edition, people start thinking, okay, what about the older rule sets? Because those were often not, at that time, you weren't able as a consumer to get them legally. I don't think they were on drive through RPG or available in stores. So if you were like first edition Dungeons and Dragons, you were kind of out of luck then. You had mm -hmm. to like find either illegal <laughs> PDFs and scans, or you had to search the secondhand market to get those kind of stuff. And some of the people were thinking, maybe we can recreate older versions of Dungeons and Dragons also using the OGL, because the OGL was specifically made for third edition. But then came the Osric project with uh, Matt Finch and others who uh, took the, the first edition rules, rewrote them totally in their own words, and then they also reorganized the first edition game and put it into a more uh, easily more referenced book. And that, I think, was also a, a big game changer that only uh, quickened other people creating their own retro clones, trying to recreate their specific versions of D&D they liked, being it uh, the first basic version for Holmes or BXD&D or Beckme or AD&D 2nd Edition and such. I don't know when it came out. I want to say it was early, but I remember hearing about Blue Home as being a recreation of Holmes Basic. I think Blue Holmes was a long project. I think there was one version that was released and then an expanded version was released later because the original Holmes only had the first few classes you can play. And I think what the author of Blue Holmes wanted to achieve is like, could I expand the age, uh, the age range, the, the level range of the classes and still have it in that style? Yeah, it's saying like 2012, which sounds about right. But of course, this also coincided with the uh, first fan forums that were really into covering the older editions of Dungeons and Dragons, like Dragonfoot and ODD 74. There's a lot of contributions on those forums. And I think it's an important thing to say now that if you are listening and you, let's say after this episode is done, or maybe you've been doing some research on your own and you have found the rule set, many of which I want to say going forward, many of these rule sets are going to be available for free. Generally speaking, they will not have art or they'll be like a quick start rule set, but you'll get most of the game. Like I know for a fact, Labyrinth Lord, you can get the entire rule set for free online um, on the Goblinoid Games website. But anyway, say you have your system, you have it picked out, and you want to run adventures. All the years of Dragonfoot, you can download hundreds, and I, I mean literally hundreds of compatible adventures on Dragon's Foot. They are donated via various writers. People have rescanned old issues of Dragon, the old magazine. And it's honestly just like a public archive of all kinds of OD&D, AD&D, and BX adventures. And they'll tell you too what it's compatible with. If you're looking for something to do with your buddies and you just need a random adventure just look up dragon's foot like you know osr or however you want to write it just adventures and 
great resource um dragon's foot is i don't really post <laughs> or anything on there yeah but it's it's an old old forum but a great resource if you're looking for adventures so i highly highly recommend dragon's foot even in 2022 Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a great site. I mean, if you're looking for any rules, explanations or discussions or anything, there's always someone has already discussed it on Dragonfoot. So you just search the forum for relevant topics and you'll find them. It's an incredible resource. Also, at the same time, all the fans were also creating the first fanzines. Print on Demand had really flourished during this time with Lulu and I think also... uh, what became drive through RPG started to come up so people could create their own adventures and zines and put them up there to both to buy and also to get printed. So you can have a paperback version of things. So the first zines, of course, are Fight On and Knock Spell. And if you read those old issues of those magazines, you'll find a lot of the first more notable creators, people who are still active in the scene. And you can see their articles and their adventures there. Uh, where they discuss dungeon design or all kinds of things, their own rule hacks and such. This is roughly around the time when I first started to kind of gain interest um, in OSR. I had heard of kind of like a retro movement, but I wasn't fully invested yet. I hopped in uh, shortly after, right when the first blogs and stuff started to pop up. So like the Blogspot days, G plus days, that's that's when I first kind of popped in. Around this time, I'd say is kind of when the identity and the, the gelling of what OSR was really started to form. This is like, you know, the cake is in the oven and it's slowly starting to bake. These are like the formative years. And it's awesome to see that this type of dedication to fanzines, community zines is still thriving to this day. Um, So much so that uh, I know of a couple different places that are doing like one sheets. And uh, all a one sheet is, is um, if you take a, a typical like newspaper and, you know, you take all one sheets and just fold it. So it's half, half, half. So literally one piece of paper. Uh, People are putting those out now. And that'll just have things like dungeons, rule sets, tables, um, optional rules. That type of dedication can all be traced back to these original zine years when the the format and the way to get content to people was starting to kind of, uh, you know, be identified and created and part of that culture. Because zines aren't really big in a lot of different communities within tabletop gaming, which some people would be surprised to find. But like not every community is you know, doing zines or doing things like a little bit more modern, but like the knock books where it's just, hey, here's like a hundred different people and we all contributed to one thing. So very, very, very important time that these years on the timeline are because we still see the effects and the creativity from it. I agree. I feel like at the time when the blogs started to come up, then you find, I believe, the start of the creativity of the OSR. Because the first parts of the old school renaissance was mostly about the play style. What did they like about old school D&D and why they thought what you could do with those old rules and what they thought the play style could harken back to and what was interesting about it and how to recreate things that looked like the old school versions of the books. I remember previous versions of uh, Swords and Wizardry and Labyrinth Lord, also one of the earlier retro clones. Uh, Swords and Wizardry tries to recreate original D&D and Labyrinth Lord tries to recreate BX D&D. And the first versions of those books looked like the classic books oh, as yeah. in the layout and how the it was better organized, but still the layout and the art was very retro in style yes but with the blogs i believe with for example arnold kemp with goblin punch and uh, all the other blogs that came up they started to really ramp up their own visions of what you could do with random tables with the osr play style and that's when you started getting really creative and both gonzo but also maybe naturalistic fantasy and uh ways of trying to incorporate maybe science fantasy into your games in new and exciting ways and not only recreating what the original books had. Yeah, specific. I like that you mentioned um, science 
fiction and even out there kind of Lovecraftian horror is when um, around the time of the the blogs and, you know, like you were saying, like the sharing of different options and rules and stuff. I'd say like around the time of the blog era, that's when OSR, I think, started to kind of turn and really become entrenched in the weird, the wondrous, the the best parts of what I think of when I think of OSR. And I always joke when people say like, well, like what's OSR? And it's like, you know, you enter the tomb of the mummy king and you're there and these skeletons appear. And it's like, it's, it's that classic horror element that's weird. The first thing that comes to mind is like realms of crawling chaos. Um, Around this time is when um, I won't name any names for obvious reasons, but, uh, you know, you had a famous blog go up that attracted people that had to do with like there was adult film actresses and stuff that were playing uh, D&D. And that was a good resource of learning about uh, BX and things. The person that ran it wasn't you know necessarily a great person, um, but like that, I think, was one of the blogs that actually hooked me in the blogs and then the G plus days uh, around this time is like I said, when I started to enter. So I, I remember a lot of the identification and kind of the, I don't want to say coming of age or like the coming of age of the OSR group was like settled at this point uh, because you had multiple systems running. Um, so it was no longer just, Hey, this is our interpretation of say Moldvay basic or Holmes basic or something. This is our take on this, but we're going to make it our own because, you know, if you look something, uh, look at something like LOTFP, it's, it's an OSR game, but it's totally its own game. It's got its own identity, its own classes. And I think that this is my personal favorite time period of OSR. Um, where it's at currently, and we'll get to that later, I think is as exciting as this period. But this is this is when shit got fucking awesome. <laughs> like if I can be if I can just be blunt, this this time period is when it got really cool. Yeah, I agree. This is but it's often called the professionalization of the OSR. Because now with the scene getting as big as it is, there were a lot of actors who felt that I could produce small books and uh, start selling them professionally. There you got Lamentations of Flame Princess, like you say, being probably the driving force of that. Really high quality books, sewn bound, beautiful art, really nice paper. Uh, every book had its own design. So it could become an art object in of itself. And of course, you also got Goodman Games coming out with their Dungeon Crawl Classics, which began as third party content for a D&D third edition and grew from there, still making old school type adventures but for third edition and they created their own game called dragon crawl classics which also harkens back to the older types of DD, but with its own spin on things they have its own magic system which is much more unpredictable than it was in in normal DD. and they created a lot a lot a lot of adventures for it if if you haven't played dungeon crawl classics do yourself a favor and at least give it a look the next time you're at your store, it is hard to miss. That book is thick with three C's. <laughs> that is a tome. That is a tome yeah. and a half. It is very much in the category of this isn't how the game was played back then, but it's pretty damn cool. And it invokes a lot of nostalgia through its mechanics. They do a lot of really awesome just fun things. It's very player forward, very player um, based in the players having a good time more than anything while still remaining true to the OSR design philosophy. So you'll have things like scratch off player cards. So it's like, hey, we know that you're going to die a lot. So here you go. Here's here's your level zero characters. And then you can scratch off the characters and you get I think it's like four per card. But it's just it's it's fun stuff like that. Yes, big props to Goodwin Games because DCC is a constant at my table and I try to play it every opportunity I can, um, which isn't as often as I'd like to, but lots of love in this house for that specific game. Yeah. And you also have Melsonian Arts Council from the UK. They began often making uh, third-party stuff for Lamentations, but they've also branched out and done other stuff. They're most famous for their Troika game which is not based on the old school D&D at all, uh, but on advanced fighting fantasy, which is both a choose-your-own-adventure type rule set, but also an RPG rule set. And that's 
Uh, also really interesting, beautiful books, great art, great language, very creative, very sparse at the same time. I think it's a, one of the great alternative game sets you can play within the OSR. Yes, Trika is very good. It's kind of interesting because I feel like the era in which Troika came out and you had a bunch of other games, it's when people started to look at OSR as not necessarily just a design philosophy and like, hey, in order for you to be OSR, you got to be old school with like, you know, classic star, yeah, star cone, you know, hat wizards and stuff. And it's stripping all of that away to the core elements of OSR, such as dice mechanics, actual design philosophy of how the game functions, and then placing on top of it an actual full-blown modern skin and everything. Um, You know, it's the equivalent of taking like an old 60s muscle car and putting it into the body of like a brand new sports car or something. It's still technically OSR, but it's <laughs> it's got a whole lot of new, awesome, modern goodness. And uh, Troika, uh, Electric Bastion Land, a lot of products within that category are all good. I'd say probably one of the biggest ones to come out of that would be like Mothership. Exactly. That's when you get people trying to create the OSR experience with maybe an entirely different uh, game mechanic with the D100 and uh, trying to incorporate that instead. Because the dice mechanics don't really matter. I mean, as long as you have the play style and Troika, for example, being based on advanced fighting fantasy, has a lot of skills, but the skills are very specific and that they can never encompass everything you can do at the game table. So, of course, you have to <laughs> have a lot of creative thinking anyway to how to get past things, but they give you some skills and they're often both funny and interesting. So they're just different ways to play it, because I understand, of course, that the D&D is not the go-to game for every country in the world. And uh, being in the UK, I suspect that both old-school Warhammer and uh, Fighting Fantasy has a lot of adherence and such. And uh, Mothership being a horror game might... I don't remember if Sean McCoy specifically says anything to that effect, but I suspect that Call of Cthulhu is there somewhere in the back of his mind when he chose to use the system he did. Yeah, there's a lot of professionals out there making products now with high quality and uh, probably large production costs because <laughs> what they're doing is like box sets. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're creating referee screens and a bunch of other things, their own dice, putting it all in. So it's not only a POD crowdsourced productions anymore. Now there's specific publishers in some sense, there are only like one or two people anyway, but people are actually printing the books with creators, with artists who are really doing all they can to uh, make it look beautiful. It's it's interesting to see how it's all transpired over the last 10 years, because I mean, 10 years ago, we were in Blogspot, G Plus era and, and stuff. And now you literally can go on a Kickstarter and like within a day that goal will be met. And I mean, I remember looking and seeing the the OSE referee screen and being like, oh my God, we've hit the point where like an OSR game is big enough to where, yeah, they're going to release their own referee screen, which seems like so mundane and trivial, but to see that it had come from just a bunch of nerds on a forum to where it is now, it's, it is trippy. Yeah. And I feel like I see a lot of creators also thinking about if I want to be professional insofar as I can make some money creating stuff. And I think the OSR has become, some people would say that for ill, but also for good, I think, uh, is a place where creatives can come in and feel there is an audience that I can create content for and try to sell stuff to. Mm -hmm. And that it's become big enough that there are people of course, the biggest thing is to make a third-party book for D&D 5th edition. That's probably the biggest yep. uh, market you can tap into. But I don't think the OSR is that far behind within the scene. If you're a small creator releasing PDFs on itch.io and you want to like actually want to <laughs> find a scene that people will create... <laughs> Gabe's <laughs> raising his hand here. Uh, if you want to find a scene where people actually want to play your stuff and might also spend a few dollars doing it. Uh, the OSR scene, I think, has matured to that level that people are coming into it, maybe trying to be, you know, this might be my start in RPGs. And uh, some people think that it's um, 
they like to harken back more to the G plus days, the blogosphere and talk about when stuff was released for free. And that was like the most creative part. Uh, there's some anti-capitalist people within the scene that are, are saying that. And I understand that. I do love the free stuff too. I think both of them can coexist, but, but I understand that viewpoint. And there's also people who think that a lot of outsiders, I think that's way too mean, but a lot of people think that this is a, a place to uh, pitch up your tent and try to, you know, not be a huckster. But, you know, I'm, I do all kinds of RPGs. I might start with some OSR stuff, even though you might not really understand the scene and your products are not really uh, that great. <laughs> so some people are also like wishing that people would commit a little bit more time before they start producing mm-hmm. and publishing their stuff. They want them to be more thought out. Uh, I mean, I, I do story games. I do this game. I do that game. I do an OSR title. I do this. And I understand creators want to create, and I love that too. But I do understand at the same time that it's not a free-for-all, <laughs> basically. I, like any scene, if it's the punk scene or it's like uh, music scenes or art scenes, I think you have to not do your time, but show that you're engaged, engage with the products. And if you're going to create something on your own, try to make it so it can actually stand up against what the scene is producing. And then when you feel like I'm comfortable at this level, I think this is good content Then release it, of course, and, and see what you can do. I want to bookend that with this. And uh, this is, this is coming from Gabe. I I'm going to, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm going to assume that you're going to agree with me on this. <laughs> okay. I know the OSR scene has not always appealed to a lot of people. Um, it has had its periods where it was was kind of elitist, potentially gatekeepy. Um, there have been yeah. some bad actors in OSR, but for the last ten years since I've been a part of it, I have had nothing but good interactions with I would say ninety nine percent of the community. Um, and that includes a lot of authors as well. I see a lot of people, and I've even come across people that are immediately sketched out when they're like, you write OSR? It's unfortunate because I know a lot of that shit comes from either forums or Twitter or social media or whatever. Someone will say something and then that gets attached to another thing, which gets attached to another thing. And then before you know it, you know, it's this whole big mess. But I want to say as someone that's a person of color that uh, has been a part of the OSR scene for a while, there's a lot of really cool people in the scene. A lot of really cool authors. Um, I had a mistake happen once with a book. I got a book in, it was messed up. I messaged the author and they were like, let me just send you out a book for free. What'd you think of it? Any, you know, any feedback for me? So much stuff like that. And it's, it's such an awesome scene. Um, so I just want to say if you've been a little suspect of like OSR, because you've heard of the things that have happened to it, hop in the community, start talking to people, whether it's a discord or something, you will find that a lot of that has been removed from the scene almost entirely now granted there's going to be chuds in every scene like there is you know in death metal or black metal but it's it's great honestly i how do you feel about it i i can't recommend the osr scene enough i feel the same way there's a lot of drama sometimes and that takes up a lot of space but i think if you just disconnect from twitter yes and only be there when you want to be there and hang out and just, you know, ignore. Because you know how attention economy works on Twitter and Facebook. As soon as something high drama comes up, that gets all the attention and it gets pushed up the feed. And uh, if you're allergic to that, well, I'm sorry. It's a scene that does happen now and again. And there are some bad actors and there's some people who are windbags. Yep. And uh, I mean, they can be great creators, but still, you know, be, you know, difficult to hang out with. And you they get in fights all the time over really shitty small things or or big things too. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think that don't let the scenes drama, if I'm going to just boil it down to that, uh, get in your way. I mean, there are all types of people here. If you think that problem solving and rules light is your go-to in RPGs, try it out and hang out with people. Hang out with us on Discord, yeah. the Full Metal RPG Discord. There are a lot of thoughtful people there. They're both very opinionated, but also very... Um, they don't have a lot of prestige, yeah. if you can say if that if you can say that at the same time. But I think people on that Discord say why they like things, and uh, there can be great discussions there. 
But me and Gabe just try to talk about what the joys of the OS are and what, what's fun about it. And well, we have the whole series to discuss all kinds of topics and we probably will. But I think any game is worth discussing and any book is worth discussing, any blog post is worth discussing because mm-hmm. it's so informative. It's so fun. I've talked to Gabe earlier and I want to have an episode just on Secret Doors. Yeah. It's a really nerdy thing. Yeah, no, Secret <laughs> Doors and... And traps like, dude, I, I can't tell you how many times. Okay. I had in college the shittiest internet you can imagine. I once came across, it was a trove of probably like a thousand different tables that was in a zip file that someone had put up on their blog spot. And they were like, Hey, here's all these tables I did over the course of like, however long download them. I sat and I waited for that shit to download. It took so long, but it was worth it. So get at me with an episode of nothing but just secret doors or like, you know, secret levers or poison traps or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot to discuss. But basically what we have now is both the itch.io where people can set up their own stuff. We have a lot of people putting things up on drive-thru RPG, one of the bigger platforms to buy tabletop RPG products digitally. And of course, one of the great things is the zine has come back in a big way, mostly thanks to a project on Kickstarter called Zine Quest. And there, a lot of creators have started to create their own stuff. And uh, people are making small pamphlets, small books even, and releasing it there. And that's a part of the professionalization of the, the scene is that people have seen that if I put up a Kickstarter and I really work really fucking hard on my project and uh, try to sell it there, I might actually get a few hundred or maybe even a few thousand copies sold. And then uh, that can facilitate what I want to do within the scene as a creator. And also maybe it helps uh, also put your stuff out there. So people can try out your adventure and play it and review it and uh, incorporate it in their own sandboxes and their own games and their own worlds and get back to the creator about how that product affected their world and their players. So the feedback loop is both financial and also creative. And uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's almost like a unspoken code of conduct with that too, which is a lot of creators, myself included, will either do like pay what you want or, you know, community copies. And I think that's kind of the residual belief um, that has, you know, carried through all of these years of maintaining that um, idea of free and open source. But also, you know, we're, we're not dumb. We understand people need to get paid. So I have gone and, you know, snagged a community copy, looked at it and been like, hey, this is cool. And then I'll go back and then whatever the author has said, hey, if you like this, chip me some money, you know, five bucks here, whatever. Honestly, if I look at it and even the first page is useful, I'm going to be paying them. Because I know how difficult that stuff is. Maybe it is a, you know, a D20 table of like weird trinkets or something. I'm going to use that and I'm going to get way more time than I did at work making the $5 I used to spend it. That's also like a, a really cool bit is that, that that has still carried through even in the days of the zine. You know, it might be a physical product that some people would scoff at because, oh, the capitalist approach to OSR. But you know what? It's still there. It's still free. People still believe in that. But also, if we're talking about how to get hold of things and how to also support creators, we have Patreon now. And you see a lot of maybe the more already famous people, of course, but people sending up content there that you can become a patron and basically subscribe to their content and you get a hold of all their current backlog. And you can see a bunch of different things. They might create things uh, you know, version 0.6 and 0.7, and you can see a creation start to build, but you get the bare bones versions first, and you can use that immediately at your table and play with that. You don't have to always have the perfect worded final product to use it in your games. So I also think that's kind of fun to, to hop onto the people's Patreons and basically cannibalizing their entire content and reading it and seeing what's cool and how does this version differ from the earlier version? Because I love that kind of minutiae. I love seeing how, how someone's systems have developed. But I believe that can probably summarize uh, both the scene and the timeline that exists. A lot of things happen at the same time, of course, the blogs, the first PODs, the games. It's really difficult to say that this happened first and then happened later. Well, there you have it. The abridged version of the history of OSR. 
but there's so many i mean we can name drop games all day long i mean mercbori from sweden we have all the stuff that's coming out of brazil and, and the rest of latin america there's so many things coming out from all all places do you want to bring up some examples i think we have a i'm looking at my table right now and i figure that there's so much to to discuss but i figure we could just bring up maybe one or two examples each yeah. of specific titles or books or games that we just want to present a little bit what's our personal experience of it and what we think yeah i'll probably do two and then I'll, i have one honorable mention because i can't just i can't prune down to two you can't do that to me <laughs> i know i know that's no problem we have all the time in the world but to begin with one of your titles Get, yes please. so if anybody knows me they know that i am the final holdout from gavin from ose i have not fully embraced ose and it's not because it is a bad game in fact quite the opposite i i love ose but most of the market moved away from this game into OSE. And I'm the last person that's like, you'll never, you'll never pry it from my hands. And that is Labyrinth Lord. Your first love always has a specific uh, space in your heart. Labyrinth Lord is my high school sweetheart, man. I, it was the first uh, system ag that I found back, oh man, probably 2012, 2011, sometime around there. Um, so for those that don't know, Labyrinth Lord is a derivative of BX D&D. So that is Basic Expert, which is my personal uh, favorite edition of D&D. It is a rules clarification as well as a kind of expansion of the system. Um, so what's neat about that is way back in the day, uh, you would have BXD&D and you would have Advanced. Advanced is what we refer to as first edition. BXD&D was its own product line. BXD&D had things like fighter, dwarf, elf, magic user. That's what we call race classes. And that is where you did not have a race in class like you would normally in a video game now. You would have things like a dwarf fighting alongside an elf fighting alongside a magic user. First edition would have things like races and classes and things. And what was cool about Labyrinth Lord is that it was marketed as the Rosetta Stone of the old school because you could have things like a dwarf, a fighter, um, and a magic user fighting alongside a dwarf fighter, an elf, you know, druid, and everything would work. Uh, you also have really neat things such as uh, some of the level caps of the original rules have been removed so you can get uh, level 20 if you want uh, with any specific character. That's not really going to change the gameplay a whole lot in the sense of where it would make it a completely different game and not be recognizable. It's kind of like um, a purist approach to making the original rules better than they already were. So I highly, highly, highly recommend, even if it's just to sit and collect dust on your drive, if you never look at it, just go and download it. Just go and download it. You can find it on Goblinoid Games. Everyone needs to have a copy of this in their library. Again, it's it's free. It's literally free. Just go. Support Daniel Proctor because he made a fucking incredible game. I personally have bought copies of this book to give to people because that's how much I like it. So number one would have to be Labyrinth Lord. There's a lot of adventures that also specifically refer to Labyrinth Lord. And uh, Labyrinth Lord, because it being a retro clone that didn't want to copy bx wholesale it has its own small tweaks to it so if you want to use the treasure tables for example in barrel maze one of the big mega dungeons it refers specifically to the labyrinth lord uh, treasure tables there then i just started using that just because i wanted to you know be true to what the creator of barrel maze wanted so there's uses even at that level but of course you cannot be underestimated how important labyrinth lord was yeah all glory to osric but i do believe that labyrinth lord was really utilized by a lot of gamers pre-Lamentations uh, and pre-Old um, School Essentials. And Daniel Proctor's passion for the old school is so apparent when you read it. Like, honestly, trying not to be a fanboy, that dude is still in his community. I, I'm part of a, a Facebook group of people that are like super fans of Labyrinth Lord. And he'll pop in and people will ask him like, hey, like, what did you mean by like page 75? And he'll he'll reply he'll he'll ask people in that group like hey what do you guys think of this what do you think of this and the dude just likes making games and he's always down to talk and answer questions so if you ever have any you know just literally look for the lap lord facebook group and he's probably in there so um but yes i i completely agree it's the 
it's the game that doesn't get as much praise as I think it deserves. So, well, maybe you want to help them create a little more polished physical version of oh, the game. Dude, I'd be so stoked if you put out a second edition. <laughs> <laughs> That's mostly because I'm not a, the biggest fan of the layout of the compendium, but damn it, I'll still use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very usable regardless. Mm-hmm. I figured the first title I would recommend is a quite new and it's a fun book. It's called Six by Six by Six, The Mahamic Missile Method. And it's been released by Lamentations of the Flame Princess recently. It's written by Ezra Cleveri, I believe. That's how you pronounce his last name. The entire book is basically a huge table uh, where you roll three sixes, where one six is uh, the hundredth number, one's the tenth digit, and the third one is the, the single digit. So you roll that on a table. The whole book is basically a bunch of different ways to both flavor and distinguish and to make the magic missile its own thing. For example, there's one version called... All of these are really difficult English, apparently. That's that big brain supplement. (laughs) Exactly. Let's find one that I can actually say without fumbling around. Here's one example. Mouth moray. From the target's mouth emerges an eyeless creature that resembles a moray eel in sliminess, ferocity, and at least one inner set of pharyngeal jaws, which it extends to bite the target's exterior, as if attempting to gnaw a way back in. If the target has no mouth, then the moray exits through another orifice. In absence of orifices, the moray chews one, causing the target an extra die of damage. If a mouth moray destroys a fleshy target, it chews its way back inside, then incests a shell of mucus to estivate for D216 years. So that's just one of the many ways a magic missile can be used in your game. So if you think magic missile is a little uh, formulaic or your players are not really trying to figure out how their magic users, magic missile could be a little more fun than just you know, a laser beam or you know, white light being shot from their fingers, but you want something more cool, then this book 6x6x6 by six by six just gives you... I believe, 216 different versions of Magic Missile. I'm going to have to pick that up. That's cool as hell. It's really fun. A lot of the stuff is really crazy. And the artwork is great and creepy. Being Lamentations, it's basically a bunch of horror images. Um, let's see, what which ones? The Partuating, Partuating the Skull Spider is one version called. The caster's head swell and bursts, and amid its ruin stands an ambiguous creature, a skull-like spider or a spider-like skull, larger than the head that birthed it. Legs of bone perch on the caster's shoulders, and it cradles beneath its belly the sunken orb of an egg sac. From the skull spider's vacant eye sockets shoot threads of something luminous and corrosive, evaporating even as it eats into its targets. After this attack, the skull spider disintegrates, as if it was made of but papery spider molts. Below, the caster tears open the silken sack to reveal her original head unharmed. So, that's how a magic missile could be in your game. Uh, It's highly recommended. It's very pretty. It's cloth-bound with gold metallic lettering on the cover. It's really fun. And if nothing else, it's great for NPC magic users. A referee could use these to really spice up their NPC... uh, you know, enemies I in the game. I really need to get this. This is so cool. When did that come out? I think it came out for uh, maybe a half a year ago, a few months ago. It's one of the newer titles. Do you have any other games or books to recommend? <sighs> yes. Yeah. So I have another one. Um, I would like to recommend this for everyone uh, that might not have a whole party. Uh, So for those that don't have a group of maybe three or four, because you always have to include the DM. So if you are just uh, you and a friend, you and a significant other, um, you and an online buddy, this game is great for you. It is called Scarlet Heroes. So Scarlet Heroes is a product from the genius, and I don't mean this in any sarcasm, the man's literally a genius in my opinion, of uh, Kevin Crawford. So he did games such as Stars Without Number. He just came out with his own take on the system 
fantasy OSR, which is Worlds Without Number. But uh, anyway, Scarlet Heroes. So what is Scarlet Heroes? Well, it is an OSR product. So because of that, you can run this with Temple of Elemental Evil. As you might have remembered from uh, the previous two episodes, in OSR, most, if not everything, is going to be compatible. Um, But Scarlet Heroes was built to be played with anything. So why should you buy Scarlet Heroes? Scarlet Heroes is made and designed for the following. One DM, one person. So during lockdown, my girlfriend and I We're obviously the only people in our apartment. Uh, We couldn't go see our friends. We had our online game, but rolling dice in person and hearing the clickety-clack on the table, it's just something you can't really recreate online. So I picked this up and her and I ran through, I want to say it was a handful of modules that I'd actually downloaded from Dragon's Foot. You know, it's funny I mentioned them earlier, but I had just uh, downloaded maybe like five or six smushed them together and made one story and then ran it like that. I won't get into the nitty gritty of it, but there are really cool ways that he created to compensate for the power party. So one of which includes every single time you enter combat, the player always goes first. You have a thing called the fray die and the fray die is supposed to represent glancing blows. Um, You know, maybe you fatigued the orc and you're able to kind of just get in and nick their leg or something. It's small dice, but it's consistent damage. Um, So that's kind of how he starts to balance the system, but it's very cool. So if, you know, you don't have any friends to that want to play OSR. Maybe all your friends want to play Call of Cthulhu or 5e, but you have a significant other that might be interested or even a buddy. Perfect system. It's very affordable. It's a drive through product. Can't recommend it enough. It has its own built-in setting, which is very Eastern inspired. It's very reminiscent of the old dynasty era of um, Asian culture. A lot of the art style and the elements are derived from that area. So I like it. And the coolest thing is that character creation is a breeze. The thing I really like is the skill system. And the skill system is, can you think of a skill that your character knows how to do? Uh, Sure. I know how to pick locks and do thief things. Cool. That's your skill. So there's no dead set list of things that your character can do. It's all on the DM and the player creating a story together. Yeah. Old school D&D is really built around having quite a number of characters in your party to be at all effectful. Not only like, you know, classic party balance that you need a magic user and a cleric, but just the number of characters are quite five, six characters to be truly effective in most most adventures and uh, of course you, one player can really you know have an entire party and play with them instead you know i have like four characters hirelings and whatnot yeah exactly you could do it that way but it sounds really cool because this lessens the need of having having to role play <laughs> a whole party by yourself as a player yes and it feels great Honestly, um, we play tested the hell out. Of, well, I don't even want to say play test. We just played the game. Um, but, you know, for me, I'm the type of person that's uh, looking and seeing as a DM, you know, how can how does this game work? Let me tinker with it. Let me see what where I can push it. I love it. I, I couldn't find really one thing to complain about. If I had to, it's that I don't really vibe with the setting, not because it's bad or anything. I just if I'm going to be running a one on one, I, I like to be dark and spooky. I just kind of took the game, replaced it with my own. But, uh, you know, I'm sure if you're looking for standard high fantasy with an Eastern twist, it'll work for you. Oh, and it has solo play. That was the, other, the one thing I forgot. It has rules for solo play. So I figured that I would bring up another title, which is probably one of the more notorious PDFs ever released in the OSR. The supplement is called The Halls of Ardenval which is a mega dungeon that is, I think, 1,100 pages long, costs $100 to buy from DriveThruRPG. It's a huge, huge fucking book. And the reason why I'm recommending such a large and uh, expensive product is because it's really, really good. I believe that it's maybe prohibitively expensive, but the creator knows their worth and the dungeon is massive it's a bunch of different main levels and sub levels and including the sub levels i think it's like 20 levels this dungeon it comes with its own starting city and its own um, history which is quite lightweight you can like introduce it into the game at your own pace the setting is really interesting the point of the game is is that there is 
across the sea, there's a place where there's an ancient city from the current empire's ancient past. And that city is placed upon a, a cliff. And on that cliff is a ruined city. And below it are the 20 levels of, of dungeons. So the players can adventure throughout the mega dungeon. And all the levels in the mega dungeon are interconnected in surprising and interesting ways. So there's always ways to fast track travel down and below. And there's lots and lots of factions. So first time you read it, you don't have to read everything, but you just have to get a sense of what places that my players will most likely visit at the beginning. And you start reading up on that and you start familiarizing yourself with those factions and how they interact with each other. And there's a lot of possibilities for the players to uh, both work together or fight against certain factions and then to employ other factions in their power struggles below the city. And there's a lot of politics if you want to have it in the starting town as well. So there's a lot of possibilities there for the players to do whatever they want, however they want. And I think it's been a blast. I've been playing it with my players and we've been playing probably 30, 40 sessions now. It's lots of fun. I, I was uh, so surprised about how things connect together. And when you play classic D&D, you find out that there's a lot of level one and low level content. And you figure, why would you have that? Because the players are going to level past that like you do in a video game and just breeze past that all the time. But what I found out when I play with my friends is that they die all the time. So it's always a fluctuation of what level they can actually deal with. Uh, the highest level characters are there and they probably push forward, but they can also die and they go back and forth. And there's so many entrances down into the dungeon and many of the entrances are level appropriate for low level characters, but some are like, really, you know, this is going to go immediately down to eighth level characters and such. If you go up in level and your characters actually survive a bit and uh, they want to go down in the dungeon and skip a lot of the you know, quote unquote, low level content, you can do that. But they just need to find out how to get down and they have to be smart about what entrances they use and and such. And it's great. In the ruined city, there's a bunch of random tables. And one of the encounters you can have on that table is a green dragon. So immediately the players are going to interact with a green dragon. Most likely, depending on the reaction role, it will most likely be that they want to employ and also push around the players and demand a, a quota of their treasures and maybe first dibs on stuff, which the players will immediately probably uh, acquiesce to, but at the same time try to limit their exposure and how much they have to give to the dragons. There's a push and pull there, and the dragon is in the game immediately. My players met the dragon five, six sessions, and they were scared shitless when a green dragon just flew down and just started giving them help, but also, you know, strong arming them into giving them treasure. That is so cool. It's lots of fun. So they're having a long-term plan of how to deal with the green dragon, my players. So it's, it's lots of fun. It, there's so many great factions, and the game is also very science fantasy. The lower levels are a bunch of alien tech and such. Big mixture of fantasy and science fiction there as well. One cool thing that is sadly kind of buried in the book is that plate mail is not typical in this world. So you're supposed to remove it from all the shops. Mm. So the only plate mail they'll find is within the dungeon oh, by, by the more ancient society. They have plate mail. So that plate mail will become something highly sought after. And when the players start rocking plate armor, all the rival adventure gangs, which the book includes 10, 10 different gangs of varying levels, depending on what level you are in. Maybe they grow alongside you. I mean, they might want to have that plate armor that you have. And all of a sudden you got a target in your back. I need to finally snag this because I've heard nothing but praise from that. And I need to get this in, you know, in hard copy. This is now the second time I've had someone recommend it. So if you do buy it for full price, I, I promise you it's a great product. You'll never have to use anything else again. It gives you a lot of content, but it doesn't spell out everything. So it gives a lot of white space for you to put in whatever you want if you want more of it. The dungeons are very thoroughly done, but the world outside is like, basically, you only get one town with a map with all the other towns in the area. Could be anywhere. Yeah. So you can just plug in other adventure sites above ground if you want to, or there's a political dynamic in the valley where all this takes place also, which my players have begun to interact themselves. They've ingratiated themselves with one power player in the valley already, and they're, they're probably going to seek up the other one and work for them as well and see how they can leverage them against each other and see which one they have to finally betray. That is so, <laughs> so cool. 
you get a lot of content included in that. And you can, of course, cannibalize it or tear it apart and take dungeon levels out and use it as you will. But because it's so integrated, it's really interesting as is. If you ever need a mega dungeon that's several levels deep and it gives you a lot of really cool content. One thing I also want to say about it is that uh, the room design is also really good. I mean, there's thousands of pages and every sub-level and every room even is interesting. I can't believe how much content they put into this. You would think that there's a bunch of fluff and, you know, this is basically just empty room descriptions and there's no theme here. And you'd think that, but no, 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 there's so much content. They have a level one, which is specifically designed to introduce people to the OSR play style. So this dungeon has its own Tomb of the Serpent Kings style intro level that will introduce people to how to play OSR. That the level is fun in and of itself. It's a bunch of cool NPCs and monsters in there and super deadly. So people understand immediately this is really a dangerous environment. It's even more dangerous in some ways than the lower levels. <laughs> On the random encounters, there's falling blocks that, and walls. That part of the dungeon is like, you know, really rickety, but further down, it's more stable. But here, every time our players have to, you know, cross through this section, they're super scared that a wall or the ceiling will fall onto them. I love so that. So they just rush through it every time they go down there. So as an introduction to the OSR, it's also really cool because it just like Tomb of the Serpent Kings really uh, wants to point out for the players, it's a dangerous environment you're in play smart, be here as little as possible, just because there's a basically a ticking clock at any moment. Giant spiders might attack you. Sections of the dungeon will collapse. Yeah, I love that. I love the the threat of the environment because I feel like a lot of people forget about that. I've heard, like I said, I've heard nothing but good things. The first time I heard about it is when I was talking about how much I love Barrow Maze and uh, uh, Stonehell which I've, I've actually finished a Stonehell playthrough. That's that's the one tick mark that I get to, you know, cross off my, my bucket list. And it made me want to check out more Mega Dungeons. And one of the first ones I heard of for fans of Barrow Maze was Ardenvul. All right. I had one honorable mention. A very fun, very weird set of zines that you can get through Ultan's Door. And it is by a author known as Ben Lawrence. Through Ultan's Door is a series of zines that, when combined, create kind of a single module. The setting is cool. It is kind of a very weird but very fantastical uh, place. It's very much a story about a door that opens up. uh, And this door can be anywhere. I think typically it's going to be found in a pawn shop or any type of shop. Um, People go inside the door and they come out and they have bags and bags of gold. And, you know, this guy decides, I'm going to start selling, you know, tickets to get through the door. Party goes, and now you are in some kind of crazy dimension. Um, And it has all kinds of really cool, but very just weird things. I know it's a very generic word, but I, I can't emphasize the weird part. So like there's owl riders and they ride around on owls like horses. There's uh, the entire city that it takes place in is kind of floating above this glowing nest of like tangled roots and spiders. There's the images of like a waterfall that's just kind of in the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of interesting objects you can come across. There's like a race of pig people. So all kinds of dark, twisted, interesting encounters within this very high, fantastical, almost uh, dreamlike plane of existence but uh it is currently two issues with the third part coming in part one and part two and then there is i want to say in uh, a supplement to the through oltan's door series of zines which has uh, a couple other additions to it but it is very good i had the opportunity to run it for a couple of weeks uh with an online group but the group got a little busy so i wasn't able to finish it Um, but i've read the entire thing uh it's very good there is a lot of opportunity to sit and explore and i would say that in some parts it's even encouraged that the players sit explore kind of tinker with the walls, interact with the environment, because you will miss a lot of the um, nooks and crannies that are just kind of pockets of intrigue, just classic like dungeoneering. There's a lot to be found, but the players have to go looking for it. So I would say it's more catered towards a party that is okay with taking, you know, 
maybe 15 to 20 minutes per room, fully exploring it, fully looking through the bodies, figuring out the puzzle that might not make sense. Uh, I know when I ran it, I had players taking meticulous notes. And then before we go on, let's figure out this puzzle. And that's the kind of group that needs to run through it. Um, Get a group of um, deep thinkers and have them run through it. it. It'll be a good time. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now at uh, his uh, big cartel shop. There are three issues, and the third issue has, like you said, a supplemental uh, fanzine with it, too, yeah. called Beneath the Moss Courts. So there's a lot of content there. Yeah, it's very, very heavily dreamlike. It's almost like a lucid dream. The way that they are able to describe the setting and, and the art for it is absolutely gorgeous. It is so beautiful. And the physical copies, actually, the covers detach, which is really nice. And you can have uh, your map in front of you. I think it will become a modern classic. I just can't wait till uh, he's done with it and maybe he can collect it into one huge book. Yes. I've yet to play it, though. I just figured I would recommend on our way out a few blogs I just wanted to put out there. And if you haven't already seen them, please visit them and read them. They're great. Probably the one that's most discussed nowadays is Bones of Contention, which is kind of a super group of a bunch of different bloggers and creators, bonesofcontention.blogspot.com. So please check that out. There's a lot of reviews and discussions there concerning the OSR that's outstanding. I think it's really good. Another one is a classic called Papers and Pencils, created by uh, Nick L.S. Whalen who has been creating content for the OSR for a long time. He has one post on, I don't remember the name of it now. This is Malcolm from the future. The post is called Structuring Encounter Tables. I'm not finding it now. So let me just, <laughs> let me just describe it. It's a post about how you set up your random tables for the overland, I mean, the above ground hex crawls. And it's really simple. He just breaks down what the table should be. You should have a 2D6 table with the probabilities displaced enough so it'll be um, interesting that the outliers, the 2 and the 12, will be rare enough that they will be great encounters, but they're not that rare that they'll never happen. So uh, he says, at the 2, put a wizard, a real strange wizard. And the 12, a dragon. Because in Dungeons & Dragons, there's two little dragons. <laughs> People interact with two little dragons. So you put, put a dragon there. And the other ones you just place with different kinds of uh, factions and uh, creatures that you think uh, should populate the world. And you should also have two weird, totally random, I mean, super random things that have nothing to do with your flavor or your... Uh, maybe right above the two and maybe, maybe the three and the four should be totally weird. So if you want to have like, you know, a flying whale or you want to have That's awesome. mushroom people above ground, you just put them there. You can change out things as you want. And you can maybe have this area of the hex map has this table. But when you travel farther west, the guys who are very common become more of an outlier. So that means they do have movement out here, but you won't uh, see them as often. And all this is to create a sense of place. In the plains, we always meet patrols. So the players will start saying, we meet so many patrols here, we might find a patrol if we need one. Or the, the evil king's patrols are always in this area, so he should not be there. But because the 2d6 is, um, every number will come up often enough, but it's still rare enough that creates a sense of place and a sense of how likely an encounter will be. Like a, if you like have, a bell curve? Yeah, bell curve, sorry. Yeah, you have your bell curves. So the seven, six... And eight are the most common right. occurrences. So you always put what you want to be the most common occurrence. You put it there and you put all the weird stuff and the outliers like the dragon and the wizard on the further steps so that you won't meet them that often, but you can meet them now and again. So in that way, the players will believe in the world and they will start saying, I don't like this area because we always meet bugbears here. And that could be because the bugbear is actually a quite common occurrence on that counter table. They'll start believing that this place is inhabited by things just by using the random table. So you, just by using random tables, you can create your world. All you need is that. You just create your encounters. You make those NPCs or those monsters, give them backstory, and then let the randomness decide when you actually meet them and how you meet them and, and such. So... Papers and Pencils is a great blog, a lot of great content, adventures, discussions. Highly recommend the blog. I'm going to have to check that out because I'm a sucker for like philosophy and design discussion and all of that. Oh, yeah. And also um, Nick produces and releases Blogs on Tape, which is a podcast where he and others read 
allowed really influential blog posts of the OSR. The OSR's blogosphere is huge, massive, and it's hard to find the greatest hits. You can find them in Knock Magazine, like we talked about in the last episode. A lot of them are reprinted there. But if you want them in audio form, check out the podcast Blogs on Tape. You'll find what Nick and the others think are cornerstones of the OSR blogs. But they do bring up Arnold Kemp's uh, D100 table of uh, you know peasant grievances. It's really fun to read because <laughs> when they read a lot of all the things the peasant can say, you know, he's complaining about the weather or his aunt or or the king or it's it's lots of fun. So I can I can recommend that as well. And one more blog is called Traverse Fantasy by Marsha B. And she theorizes a lot about tabletop RPGs and the OSR and uh, a lot of uh, very thought provoking articles. I think she comes off as a kind of a communist anti-capitalist within the OSR, talking about how things should be communally created and how things should be free. But she also has huge takes on the original Dungeons & Dragons. I believe she's also creating her own retro clone of the OD&D Ooh, rules. I'm always about... So whenever that comes out... I'm always about some OD&D retro clones. You have my <laughs> so interest. When so when she finally publishes that, that'll be great. Traverse Fantasy, the address for that is Chiquita Fajita dot blogspot.com uh, all these links uh, to these blogs and podcasts will be provided with the episode so if you just look at the description of the episode you'll find the links to all these stuff there too fantastic there's so much more to discuss being a swede i would love uh, in some way to discuss what sweden has provided the osr and uh, maybe get some interviews with the creators if we want that or just discuss specific books and games that'd be really cool i would love to like i said discuss specific portions of the old school D. we didn't even bring up basically anything about into the odd a great kind of minimalist style osr game there's so many games to, to discuss in books so we'll be probably discussing this for many episodes to come uh listeners we hope that you've enjoyed the episode and have thoughts about what we've done of course uh, hit us up on the the full metal rpg discord film rpg is our sister podcast from phoenix arizona love what they do mm-hmm. and uh they have their own community which we have basically attached ourselves to yeah <laughs> so uh if you have any feedback please just write to us either in the in the chats or directly there with us and we'll get back to you yeah for sure as you were saying i if anyone has any suggestions or things that they would like to see us cover please by all means reach out to us uh either on that discord or honestly you can even reach out to me on twitter i don't know if malcolm is on twitter i know you're against social mm, media i skulk on twitter only i don't really engage okay. yeah well if you're on there i'll i'll be sure to include my handles on where you can find me because i have two now i have my game company one and then i have my personal one i'll i'll include both of those in case it's easier for any listener to reach out to us on there so maybe we didn't really quite pique your interest and you're like i'm sure there's something that they didn't cover that might be of my interest uh i'm always down to recommend people games especially because i i just i play everything (laughs) so yeah and if you think we're bringing up the only the obvious stuff and you have a lot of deep dives or some really obscure gems that need to get more attention please also just meet us on discord and uh and plug them we would love to know about them and uh and give them the credit they deserve yeah or if you just have a game you are a writer or a developer or something and you want us to cover it hit us up i'd love to read it maybe even like you know have them on well thank you everyone and uh how do you sign off well i'm just gonna sign off now thank you everyone yeah, <laughs> yeah have a good one have a good one